0: Madison in the 60s, Death of a President. Wednesday, November 20, 1963. President John F. Kennedy begins his last full day in the White House sending a Western Union telegram to UW President Fred Harvey Harrington. Kennedy congratulates Dr. Harry Weissman and his colleagues at the UW Orthopedic Children's Hospital on that afternoon's dedication of the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Memorial Libraries funded in part by a quarter-million-dollar grant from the Family Foundation. Kennedy, whose sister Rosemary had developmental disabilities and suffered a botched lobotomy in 1941, salutes Weissman on his efforts to, quote, conquer the vast field of mental retardation and its attendant problems. In a six-hour visit that afternoon, Senator Edward M. Kennedy and brother-in-law R. Sergeant Shriver, the Peace Corps director, tour the laboratories, attend a scientific symposium, and hold a dedicatory luncheon at the Memorial Union. Thursday, November 21st. On President Kennedy's last full day alive, testimony before the State Industrial Commission reinforces the reason for the summer's March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Out of a combined workforce of 7,600, the nine largest local companies here have only 47 black workers. Friday, November 22nd. Humid with a chance of rain. Madison wakes to find the president's political trip to Texas is front-page news. Large crowds, but some catcalls in Houston and San Antonio, with Dallas on tap for today. Around 11.30 a.m., about 800 festive Badger boosters board a special 20-car Milwaukee Road train bound for Minneapolis and the UW-Minnesota football game. Eleven months after their thrilling Rose Bowl loss, Milt Brunes boys hope to salvage a disappointing season by at least keeping Paul Bunyan's axe. In downtown Dallas, two Madison men see President Kennedy in his last few minutes alive. Lieutenant Bruce Kepke, UW 1963, returning to Madison for a month's leave after officer training in Oklahoma, has enough time before his train to watch the motorcade. He finds a good spot on the curb and waits. George Holmes, vice president of the family's tire company, is wrapping up a week-long business trip. He watches the motorcade from a nearby storefront. About 12.25 p.m., Kepke is 15 feet from the First Family. Everybody's clapping, the president is waving. Then they go two more blocks and veer off to the right, toward the Book Depository building and the grassy knoll. Holmes' meeting breaks for lunch at a restaurant in a shopping center near Parkland Hospital. At 12.29 three pops. They sound like firecrackers. Kepke doesn't think that much about it and starts walking to the train station a few blocks past the plaza. He encounters a confused, frightened crowd. Nobody knows exactly what happened, just that something with the motorcade went terribly wrong. They think the uniformed Kepke might know something, but of course he doesn't. It's only when he sees the news on a TV set at the train station that he understands. It's a long, quiet ride north. Holmes is still having lunch at 1 p.m. near the hospital where Kennedy has just died. When the announcement is made a short while later, men cry and a few women faint and the restaurant empties. Holmes cancels the rest of his meetings and tries to fly back to Madison, but the airport is closed. David Marinus, fourteen, is in his ninth grade homeroom at West Junior High School when the principal Homer Winger makes the announcement. Aware he's from one of the few liberal families in the neighborhood, Marinus is taken aback by how his classmates react, students saying, Oh, well, so what? Kennedy was a commie anyway. As stunned as he was by the assassination, the future two-time Pulitzer Prize winner is even more stunned by the reaction. On the south side of town, 12-year-old Mona Adams Winston's Lakeside Street neighborhood is different. A big television is wheeled into her 7th grade classroom at Franklin Elementary, and other classes crowd in to watch. Everyone's crying, even the boys. Ben Sidron, 20, is at work, sorting records in the basement of Discount Records. There's a calendar hanging on the basement bathroom door where weeks earlier he had written The Cruelest Month on November's page, drawn blood-red daggers, and circled November 22nd. He quickly tosses the calendar in the trash and heads up State Street, wondering if the Friday night jazz series he had started the Memorial Union Rathskeller was still on. It wasn't. UW professor Gunnar Johansson can barely speak to his chamber music class. Choking back sobs, the penis says that the best thing to do is to listen to Beethoven, so he and violinist Rudolf Kolisch play the Kreutzer Sonata. At 2 p.m., the UW football team leaves Madison by chartered plane for Minneapolis. UW president Harrington wants the game postponed or canceled, but Minnesota regents say it should be played, quote, because of President Kennedy's deep interest in physical fitness and athletics. But by the time the team lands, the Minnesota president has agreed with Harrington, and the game is set for Thanksgiving morning. Harrington announces that all weekend classes and social activities are canceled, and that some classes will also be off either Monday or Tuesday, but not for the whole day. By late afternoon, at least four campus religious centers have conducted special prayer and morning services, with three more planned for the weekend and Monday. The Rathskeller is crowded but quiet. There's only a hushed murmur as people jam the main aisle and watch TV. In the Capitol Rotunda, Owen Reerson is causing trouble again. The 24-year-old is out on bail from his September arrest for disrupting a demonstration after the bombing deaths of four black girls in a Birmingham church Sunday school. Now, Reerson loudly celebrates the assassination as, quote, a miracle for the white race. Wearing a swastika armband and giving the Nazi salute, Reerson tries to distribute racist and anti-Semitic literature before he's again arrested for disorderly conduct. By evening, a hard rain is falling. Saturday, November 23rd. William D. Bensley, 18, son of Dane County Judge William Bensley, and five fellow freshmen at Whitewater State College suddenly decide to drive to Washington for the November 24th funeral. They don't even tell their parents. With only $72 for food and gas, no change of clothes, and broken springs in the back of their 54 Ford, it's not easy traveling. But they all agree it was absolutely worth it. Sunday morning... They watch the funeral cortege from the White House to the Capitol, visit the Lincoln Memorial, and climb the 897 steps up the Washington Monument. Then they stand in line for hours with a quarter million others to view the President's beer in the Capitol Rotunda and see Mrs. Kennedy when she makes her unexpected return that night. It's an emotional moment. Madison police reportedly received, but do not make a record of a phone call from authorities in Dallas, inquiring about Owen Reerson's activities and whereabouts. Early Saturday evening, two young women from the Greenbush neighborhood also spontaneously decide to drive to Washington for the services. Pauline DiMaggio and Linda Donath, 20-year-old graduates of Central High School, drive through the night and arrive in time to watch the funeral procession move from the White House to St. Matthew's Cathedral Monday morning. Madison mourns on Monday, the day of the president's funeral, with religious and memorial services from morning to night. There's little else to do. Except for local banks and financial institutions, almost every store and business is closed, at least until early afternoon. The Gisholt machine plant is open, but non-supervisory workers can take the day off. Oscar Mayer workers observe a moment of silence at 11 a.m. Even the bars of the Dane County Tavern League shut down from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. The bad guys also take a break. From 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. during the funeral and burial, there are only six police calls. Fifty is the norm for that period. Police and firemen later learn that they are excluded from Mayor Henry Reynolds' executive order granting compensatory time off for the few city employees required to work. The Hotel Lorraine Coffee Shop sets up some televisions to be seen from the lobby. Across the street, another set plays in the pharmacy of the Wisconsin Power and Light Building. A sound system on the Capitol Square blares patriotic songs. At 8 a.m., a flag-draped catafalque stands before the altar at St. Raphael's Cathedral as more than 800 pack the pews and aisles for a pontifical Requiem Low Mass. A few hours later, a Madison man plays a key role assisting Boston Bishop Richard Cardinal Cushing at a Mass at St. Matthew's Cathedral in Washington, D.C. He is Father Walter J. Schmitz, 56, 56, an alumnus of Central High School, son of, the founder of the Hub, son of the founder of the Hub Clothing Store, and dean of sacred theology at Catholic University in Washington. His brother Edwin, the current operator of the haberdashery, is watching the broadcast and can see his face clearly. After the burial, a silent crowd of 10,000 ascends Bascom Hill, seeking solace for one martyr in the shadow of another, for the state's official service at Lincoln Terrace. Carillon bells ring somber and slow till muffled drums herald the military ROTC units. The university choir sings hymns. The marching band plays the national anthem. And Honor Guard stands as UW President Harrington and other dignitaries mourn what was lost. As many of his fellow students weep openly, William Campbell, president of the Wisconsin Student Association, calls on them to, quote, Take at least one stride toward becoming a profile in courage, in support of civil rights and the poor. We can either meet this challenge or let it pass, he says. Then the benediction, taps, and the drums beating retreat. The crowd quietly melts away. Just in time for the 5 p.m. reopening of the four downtown movie theaters. At 8 p.m., more than 1,500 overflow the First Congregational Church for a multi-denominational service convened by the Madison Area Council of Churches. Something is wrong in our land, the Reverend Alfred Swan declares. We rely too much on violence. Too many weapons are flashed before the eyes of the young. Protestant and Jewish clergy read scripture and lead prayers, and many in the crowd cry as they sing America the Beautiful. Tuesday, November 26th. Dane County Judge Bensley orders Owen Rearson to the Central State Hospital at Waupon for a 60-day mental examination. For you to derive pleasure and satisfaction from such a wanton act of malicious violence is evidence to this court that you may be deranged, Bensley says. Rearson says that he's entitled to his, quote, political beliefs and that the rotunda crowd should be charged for threatening him. Attorney Wayne Martin quits representing Rearson because, quote, he is now Personally repulsive to me. Then Wisconsin officials discover Rearson is on parole from a robbery conviction in California. At 7 p.m., the Madison Common Council adds a moment of silent prayer before the regular invocation. It's the meeting at which the Mayor's Commission on Human Rights introduces its Equal Opportunities Ordinance. It bans discrimination in housing and public accommodations based on race, creed, color, national origin, or ancestry, and in employment with the added category of gender. Neither the state nor any of its municipalities have such a law or ordinance. Most campus activities are still canceled or postponed, but some groups do meet. The Young Socialist Alliance presents a speech and a discussion of, quote, the United States war machine under the administration of President Kennedy. Thanksgiving morning the 28th, the Minnesota Golden Gophers gobble up the Badgers 14 to nothing epilogue, February 18, 1964. Wisconsin authorities extradite Owen Rearson to California, where he resumes serving his sentence at San Quentin for second-degree robbery. Rearson dies in Washington, D.C. in 1986. He's 46 years old, the same age President Kennedy was the third week of November, 1963. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s.